listening to Descent Magazine's Belaboured Podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen. Hi, Michelle. Hey, Sarah. Welcome to Belaboured episode 181. Today, we're going to bring you extensive coverage of the general strike in Hong Kong, which followed weeks of massive protests which began against extradition to mainland China for accused criminals and have since expanded to cover grievances about which you'll hear later. But first, the news. Donald Trump has been threatening massive raids for most of his presidency, sometimes then scaling back after managing to terrorize entire communities. This week, though, ICE returned in a big way to the old tradition of massive traumatic workplace raids in Mississippi, arresting 680 workers at multiple food processing plants in what was the biggest such raid since the days of George W. Bush. Even as Trump pretended to care about white supremacy, heading to El Paso to visit the families of people shot by a gunman who targeted Latinx immigrants, his enforcement arm was sweeping up parents, separating them yet again from their children, and busing them to a military facility to be processed for deportation. The plants were in Bay Springs, Carthage, Canton, Morton, Pelahatchie, and Sebastopol outside of the city of Jackson. And according to an AP report, those workers had their wrists tied with plastic bands and were told to deposit their personal belongings in clear plastic bags. Agents collected the bags before they boarded buses. The Washington Post reported many children didn't have a loved one or family friend to go home to. Some of them walked home from school but were locked out because their parents were detained in the raid. Volunteers set up a makeshift shelter for the children at a local gym, WJTV's Alex Love reported. There was food, but most children are still devastated and crying for their parents and can't eat, Love said on Twitter. Meanwhile, an ICE spokesperson told the Post that all arrested individuals were asked if they had children who were at school and needed to be picked up. Cell phones were also made available to detainees so they could make arrangements for childcare. Aren't they nice? Cox also said that schools were contacted as the raids began, so they were aware there could be childcare issues and knew whom to contact if parents didn't pick up their kids. Yeah. It should be noted, of course, that such policies are not new, though they were scaled back during the Obama administration, which preferred less dramatic but no less numerous deportation policies. Trump is returning to a strategy of dramatic raids, in part because it fits his M.O. of bluster and threats, and in part because employers find them useful as a worker intimidation tactic. Organizers at plenty of southern meatpacking plants, including Smithfield, have many stories about ICE raids conveniently coming when a union election was scheduled or after a worker had made complaints. Coke Foods, one of the companies involved, and no relation to the infamous Coke brothers, had recently settled a big sexual harassment lawsuit, though it was a year ago and the workers at the plant are union members with UFCW, which is working to support them. The worksite raids also, of course, belie the argument used by Trumpists that they are focused on finding criminals, since the entire point of raiding an entire workplace is to do a massive roundup of people who are just doing their jobs. But you knew that already, didn't you? We will post the UFCW's Know Your Rights sheet along with more information about this story at the Descent website, descentmagazine.org. For workers struggling to support their families, it's clear that our lives at work are inextricably intertwined with our lives as parents, and that affects nearly every major family decision we make, from when to place them in childcare while we work, to seeking healthcare coverage that you can afford, or even whether to work at all. But one of the most crucial ways that parenthood and work intersect is in the decision of whether to become a parent at all or whether to have a child in the first place. Now we're just starting to learn about how one's economic prospects intersect with reproductive choice. The Institute for Women's Policy Research recently published an analysis on the economic ramifications of access to abortion, or lack thereof. It shows, perhaps not surprisingly, that women who had access to abortion care ended up having improved economic and educational outcomes, and the findings underscore the relationship between reproductive autonomy and one's ability to hold down a steady job, invest in education, and advance one's career. And they're all correlated in some way with the power to control your fertility. Drawing from women's economic and medical data from the years since the Roe v. Wade decision, the research review directly relinks expanded access to abortion with improved college attainment for women, lower teen fertility, increased workforce participation. For example, childhood poverty was reduced for kids of parents who had abortion access, and those children were, quote, more likely to graduate college and less likely to be single parents 
or to receive public assistance as adults. I spoke with the author of the report, Kelly Jones, on what the research tells us about how women might fare in the future as abortion access shrinks, potentially reversing some of those advancements since Roe. So the work that we did was reviewing the existing evidence about the way in which abortion access affects not necessarily the frontline outcomes like you might expect, you know, abortion use and fertility outcomes, teen births, et cetera, but the kind of downstream impacts in terms of economic outcomes. So educational attainment, labor market participation, income, poverty, both for the women who um, have access as well as the ultimate outcomes for their children, so the next generation as well. And the bulk of that evidence is based on variation prior to Roe v. Wade, so state-level variation um, in the years, you know, between 1969 and 1972. Um, and, and what, of course, those differences are quite stark in the sense that at that time, unless the state had a particular arrangement of laws regarding age of majority and, and other things um, that allowed uh, young women to have access, confidential access to abortion, then otherwise there really was no access at all. Um, and so, of course, that's um, a much more extreme situation than we face today, but we do find that it has um, significant impacts not only on um, teen fertility, um, but also um, especially uh, large differences um, in teen fertility for Black women that do translate into differences um, in their ability to complete high school, um, to enter college, um, their probability of being active in the, the labor market um, as an adult later in life, um, and then across the population more broadly, um, impacts on the next generation in terms of um, whether or not they're living in poverty as children, whether or not they're living in poverty as adults. And that was Kelly Jones of the Institute for Women's Policy Research. Last week, I visited Belfast briefly, where the workers at the Harlan and Wolf Shipyard, a storied workplace where the Titanic was built and where a history of sectarianism still lingers in many memories, are occupying the shipyard and demanding the UK government step in and prevent it from closing. The yard, which once employed over 30,000 people as a center of Belfast's manufacturing industry, now employs just 121 workers, but those workers are not willing to let it go and are demanding action. A regional organizer from Unite the Union told reporters, quote, no one moves onto that site or off that site unless the workforce who are running that site agree to it. No one is going to go in and remove anything of value from that site. No one is going to go in and take over the running of that site because workers have access and control all areas, end quote. The Yard has worked on wind turbines in the past as well as ships, and while some are calling for the UK government to build military ships there, others are thinking about it as a potential hub of green manufacturing. What could be built there if the UK government did take it over? A resolution from one union called for supporting the occupation and the upcoming climate strikes, converting the shipyard to producing renewable energy technologies, and pointed to the struggle as a potential model for future demands that could be made by workers for a just transition. Shadow Chancellor and Labour MP John McDonnell visited the yard this week and called out new Prime Minister Boris Johnson for his lack of attention to the shipyard. And Northern Ireland, of course, has a particular reason that Johnson ought to be paying attention. His razor-thin parliamentary majority hangs on the approval of the Democratic Unionist Party, Northern Ireland's Loyalist Party, which is deeply socially conservative but doesn't want to lose landmark and landmark jobs in Belfast. According to one report, quote, fielding questions from workers, Mr. McDonald was asked whether the government would fall if the DUP withdrew from the confidence and supply deal over the issue. Workers broke out in a round of applause when a union official suggested that if the DUP did not make an ultimatum to the government, then workforce representatives would stand against them in future elections, end quote. Many things, in other words, are at stake in the Harlan and Wolf occupation. We hope to bring you more soon. They came for a summer of fun to get a brief taste of the American dream. But the students instead got a nightmare, working as seasonal labor in tough, low-paid jobs for some classic American corporations. The J-1 Summer Work Travel Visa Program has been a popular way for young people to spend a summer working in the U.S., and it's considered part of the State Department's diplomatic fostering of international cultural exchange with foreign young people. Unfortunately, some of these young people's experiences have been more about human trafficking than about cultural exchange, and reports of abuse, exploitation, and fraud have piled up over the years, 
Under Trump, the program has actually grown, despite its notorious reputation for being abusive and fraudulent. Today, more than 100,000 students come from about 140 countries for short-term entry-level jobs, mostly in hospitality and leisure industries, as well as food services and other low-wage sectors. The biggest companies include some American household names like Disney, Holiday Inn, and McDonald's. And many of the students pay exorbitant fees to recruitment agencies to arrange a work assignment in the U.S. Advocates with the International Labor Recruitment Working Group say the program desperately needs to be reformed, calling for an overhaul of the summer work travel program. They say it should not be managed by the State Department, but rather placed within the purview of the Labor Department, like other federal guest worker programs. They also want to ensure transparency in the system to provide full due process, while also providing a grievance process for workers who are bringing claims under various labor or civil rights statutes. Now, however, Trump seems to be moving inadvertently in the opposite direction. Guest worker schemes like the J-1 visa program, as well as other migrant labor schemes for agricultural and blue-collar jobs run by the Labor Department, continue to draw tens of thousands of migrant workers. These workers may be legal on paper, but they are denied legal rights and protections afforded under U.S. labor law. For the students in the summer work travel program, who are basically considered exchange students, their exposure to labor abuses like wage theft and discrimination was especially acute. I spoke with Oliver Benzon, a former summer work travel worker from the Dominican Republic, about his experience working at a restaurant in Maryland, which he discovered had not yet opened on his arrival. The moment that, I, that, I, that we went over the restaurant and we saw that it was not finished, like it was under, under construction, we say, oh my God, this is going to be very, very hard. Uh, and, 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 you know, and, and the way that the, the, the manager, that, that guy treat us, that was very rude and respectful, uh, unpolite. That, that was like enough to know that it, that it, 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 it wasn't a good experience at all since the beginning. Were you informed about your rights as a worker? Did you did you have any sense of what to do if um, your employer was abusing you or exploiting you? Like, what kind of did you have any resources whatsoever? That's that's the big part. So when we were in the Dominican Republic, we're told that we need to you know go and, and address any issue to the sponsor. But once you go to the sponsor, and you see that the sponsor, they don't really do, they don't really care about anything because they know they already have the business with the, with the employer getting benefits with it. So if you go there, you speak with them, they're going, Oh, yes, I'm sorry. And we're going to work on that. In my case, there was a lot of people complaining about this guy to being um, unrespectful and an asshole, but they didn't do, did anything actually about it. So once I saw that the sponsor, they, they didn't do anything for me. At the end of the summer, I mean, how much did you end up making compared to what you paid in the fees? The first time that I went to the United States, I couldn't get, you know, even the, the amount that I spent to go there. That was $3,000. The next summer, that was in Ocean City, I like $5,000. So it would be like $2,000 more that, of what I spent. To go there. So it ended up being more than the fee? You had to, like, well, there was other stuff, too? Like, you had to pay for your airfare or something? Or? Oh, sure. Like, paying for housing, paying for food, transportation, uh, you know, all that medication. That was Oliver Benzon, a former summer work travel worker from the Dominican Republic. Hong Kong, a city-state that has bounced over the past quarter century from British colonization to China's authoritarian capitalism, is exploding with rage today. Desperation, pent-up youthful frustration, it's all spilling out onto the streets with protests that began as an uprising against a controversial extradition bill. That bill would have permitted China to remove fugitives from Hong Kong to the mainland. But now, several weeks into the heightened street protests, activists are increasingly militant, increasingly willing to confront the police, increasingly willing to unleash chaos on the streets and to challenge Beijing's dominion. They are pushing five demands. One, withdrawal of the extradition bill. Two, the resignation of the chief executive, Carrie Lam. Three, 
for the government to stop deeming the violent clashes at the protests as riots, four, a full independent inquiry into police crackdowns on the protesters, and five, release of all detained demonstrators. This week, Hong Kongers launched the first general strike in half a century, shutting down crucial transportation hubs. Workers have joined students in the streets, responding not only to the political oppression they face under Beijing, but also responding to the economic stagnation and growing inequality that constrains many of Hong Kong's youth. I spoke with three Hong Kong activists to get some insight on what's going on down there. First, we hear from L.H. Ao, a local activist with the workers' rights group WorkerCom. I think the general strike in the 5th of August is a very important moment in the history of both the social movement or the labor movement in Hong Kong. The reason is that it is the first general strike since the 1967, which means that the last political general strike happened a half a century ago. And the, but this, uh, very interesting point is that um, this time um, the general strike is not organized by any um, established union or there's no actual organizational relationship between the participants and the the only way the participants can join the strike is um, there are two ways first uh, many of them apply for the annual leave or the sick leave and the second type is that uh, because a lot of protesters simply go to block the public transportation and as a result a lot of people cannot go to work so um, I think um, this way of protest um, may open up a new um, new window for the Hong Kong protester because um, Hong Kong is a place where strike is a very rare event and in each year there is only one or two strike and so Hong Kong people have never thought about strike as a way of, of protest but now because of this kind of um, this kind of experience, many of them may may learn that industrial power is a very important way to exert the pressure to the public and to free the workers from the workplace and go to the streets to do some other sorts of protests. And the other noteworthy part is that we found that it is the freelance workers and the small shop owners who are the most active participants in this general strike. And the reason is quite quite obvious that since they are only they, they, they have a lot higher freedom to choose whether to work or not on that particular day and which means that um, they have uh, less pressure for not going to work or having less pressure to expose their politi- political idea. So um, I, I think this is also a very important um, message for the labor activists, which means that in, in the past, many of us think that the stable um, full-time workers are the important force to bring social changes. But uh, now we observe, what we observe is that many uh, full-time workers are bounded in their workplace and because they want, um, they, uh, they have a risk of losing the stability of losing the job, they hesitate to join this kind of industrial action. But on the other hand, it is the precarious workers which at the past we found more fragile and having less bargaining power who are actually more powerful and having more freedom in social movement. I, I think it is a very important point which uh, every, which all of us need to discuss because uh, we know that the workers are getting more and more precarious and, it, and in the past it may be the manual laborers who are uh, working in a very temporal way, but now it is uh, it uh, now the maybe the IT, social work, education, and other so-called professional sectors are also having this kind of precarious freelance work. So um, I think um, yeah, this is another very important point. Right. Well, not only do they have more freedom to participate in social movements, but perhaps they have more of a stake in participating in them simply by nature of their precarious status, yeah. right? I mean, they might be in a more desperate situation. Is there a concerted effort now then to organize precarious workers, um, whether it's in this political context or just, you know, for trade union purposes? The organization which I'm a part of, that is uh, WorkerCom, um, we, are, uh, we are not a union and we, we actually uh, mostly work with the workers who are unfairly and illegally dismissed 
by the bosses. So um, in this movement, what we did is to support the workers who are suppressed by the bosses because of their political participation. The reason is that um, they actually, um, I would say that the majority of bosses in Hong Kong are more pro-China, partly because uh, China, uh, a lot of uh, business people in Hong Kong has a very uh, significant uh, commercial tie with mainland China and the other part is uh, many of them were found that protests and social unrest will bring them a threat to the to their um, business interests. And as a result, um, actually, a lot of workers face pressure in their workplace. And I I received two two complaints that one one of the workers was forced by his boss to sign a petition uh, to condemn the protesters, and he refused. And the boss took revenge and gave him a warning letter, and and then we we told him what to how to handle that warning letter. And on the other case, that the and another uh, worker is even fired uh, simply because uh, she particip uh, she applied for a sick leave on 12th of June, uh, which on that day it is the first call for general strike. So uh, yeah, actually this kind of um, problem um, is keep happening and. Another problem is um, as the protest in Hong Kong is getting more and more widespread, it involves a lot of different um, communities, which in the past uh, no social movement took place. And at that time, uh, maybe there are a lot of dangerous circumstances. Say, for example, the, the police will gas the protesters or even there are there are gangsters who beat up the protesters and many but however many shopkeepers uh, cannot leave their shop because they bought without the order of the boss or we also know some cases that um, when the when the shopkeepers sh uh, close the shop earlier the boss decide to deduct their salary on that day so this is another Another issues which uh, we are now trying to try, try, trying to follow up. So you said that there are many different constituencies that are um, coming into the foreground in this latest wave of unrest. Um, I mean, insofar that it is a general strike, is there a class dimension to this, or do you think it's just sort of like the general strike was the vehicle that became the most viable um, for a broad civil society action? Is this a labor? action in the traditional sense as well as a broad protest movement it is not at all a labor action in traditional sense because uh, there is very little confrontation between the employees and the bosses because uh, even the even hkcto is uh, urging the urging the bosses to cooperate with the employees uh, for the strike so uh, actually the strike is not targeted uh, is nothing to target the the bosses, and I I think for most of the people, uh, this strike is only for the for the five demands. And however, um, some other friends also notice in a lot in in the strike assembly, a lot of workers are now thinking of organizing their their colleagues to to improve the situation of that their sectors because uh, many people also. Um, understand there are a lot of in, a lot of serious problem within their sectors. Say for example, the health and medical workers, uh, that is mainly the nurses and assistant nurses and doctors, uh, are now uh, continuously complaining the the long working hour in the public health system, and this is also one of the very important theme in their assembly. Yeah. However, there, there is no there is no no uh, no general sense in the in the class dimension. I would say. So I guess as um, you as a member of the left, um, what do you think about that? Then I mean, does that sort of take the wind out of your sails as someone who has generally been aligned with the labor movement? Um, now that you know you have unions trying to organize bosses as well, <laughs> or um, I guess like where where do we go from here from the perspective of someone who has a vision for Hong Kong beyond perhaps the five demands? What is labor's broader stake in this fight? And I guess. Um, is Beijing's control over Hong Kong 
really a workers' issue as well? Is it an economic justice issue as well? Actually, it's definitely an economic issue because、um, the role of Hong Kong in the planning of China is definitely a a financial cent financial center for the Chinese capital to go overseas and to support this、uh, financial center is、um, actually there are a lot of、um, grassroots、um, low low paid temporary workers to to support the operation, including the four hundred cut four. Four hundred thousands of migrants work domestic workers in Hong Kong. So, but however, in just talking about this movement, this aspect, this perspective、uh, cannot be expressed very clearly because the extradition law and the anti anti police violence、um, demands are, I, I would say, quite far from this analysis and. However, for the small organizations like、uh, WorkerCom, which only have、um, say twenty to thirty members, and、um, we are what we did is、uh, first to trying to facilitate、um, other workers to participate in this movement, and on the other hand,、uh, making use of our our strength,、uh, which is to communicate with the neighborhood and the grassroots workers. We are trying to provide them alternative. Informations which the mainstream media is not going to present to their audience. Like、uh, the reason is that、uh, the mainstream media is almost completely under government's control, and then every day they are lies and stigmatizing the the protesters. So what we did is to do a lot of street exhibition to to present to the neighborhood that what is actually happening in the scene of protest and why you should. Support these people. As the protests have escalated in recent days, we've seen sort of increasingly confrontational tactics,、um, mm. and、um, things have been getting、um, arguably more violent. What do you do with that information? <laughs> Is that a concern for you? Are you trying to build on this escalation in some way,、uh, tactically speaking? Is this? Is this a reflection of sort of a subset of the movement, like a breakaway faction, or what does it signify? For for the escalation, I. Personally, I would say that is a very important improvement for the Hong Kong protesters because uh, with uh, Hong Kong protesters have never did something like this in the past, which uh, include um, setting up massive barricades and direct clash, and even、um, in some occasions、uh, offending the police actively, and also to protect themselves with with force and with tools、uh, when they are attacked. By the street gangsters, and and I think this this kind of use of force is very necessary for them to protect themselves, and on the other hand, to exert certain pressures. However, of course,、uh, we need a lot of reflections on whether it whether it is、um, okay to to do something in a particular place. Say, for example, there are lots of discussion on whether whether protesters should. Set some places on fire, and yeah, the fi- fire is quite a、uh, quite now now quite a center of the debates. But、um, I would say that the the use of force and the use of the the and the diversification of different tactics, no matter it is、um, the online tactics, the the street protest tactics, and also some other、um, different ways of doing propaganda and doing street exhibition and. Communication and this、uh, also show very important improvement of、uh, Hong Kong protesters, which in the past we never seen. And I think it also sets a very good lesson for us to build the to to build the the the, the movement in the future. And I would say that strike is also one of the new tactics which the protesters learn because.、Uh, As I've mentioned,、uh, we only have a couple of strikes every year, and it means that most of the people in Hong Kong, including the street protesters, never experienced a strike before. But this time, they they have to think think carefully how to communicate with their boss,、uh, how to、uh, organize their own colleagues, and so this is all. I I would say that the yeah, even strike is also one of the. Part of the important escalation, which will bring the pro, bring the protesters and the movement 
in general, a very important lesson. And now we're going to hear from Jeffrey No. He's chief researcher at the pro-democracy group Demosisto. At least for that one day, um, there were, it seemed like there there were airport strikes. Um, is that right? Or, or um, some flight attendants were striking. Um, and I think there was an attempt to shut down some of the um, the rail transport. Um, can you talk yeah. about, like, is there a strategy to this in the sense that they're looking for strategic kind of um, choke points to cause disruption, especially to the mainland population coming in? Yes. Uh, so, so actually, no, it's not about blocking mainland Chinese population coming in. But I think blocking Hong Kong's transportation network is extremely strategic. Um, and Hong Kong uh, is a society heavily dependent on its public transportation system. Uh, and partly that's blessed by uh, its population density, which makes the uh, network, the, the public transportation network, uh, very, very helpful for people uh, relative to major cities around the world. I think car ownership in Hong Kong is uh, relatively low. Uh, and that's also because of parking costs and gas costs. But because of these unique circumstances, then um, blocking the public transportation uh, would 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 be uh, more effective than uh, than a place like you know maybe uh, I have in mind Los Angeles or or Toronto where people commute to work primarily uh, by driving. So uh, you know if you look at um, the current political situation right now, it is extremely hard for a single worker to just say, well, I'm not going to go to work because of the political crisis that's happening. Um, relatively is easier for the employer to initiate uh, some kind of uh, uh, lenient policy uh, regarding, uh, you know, getting uh, work, uh, getting to work late or not showing up at all. Um, But then from the business perspective, if they say we fully support the freedom of expression and the freedom of labor organization and therefore we allow you to strike, then that's going to be trouble for them as well because if these are businesses that uh, do work with China, uh, or, or in one way or another related to the Hong Kong political establishment, um, then that's going to get them into trouble too, which then makes the uh, blocking of transportation, uh, public transportation, extremely strategic. Because if you actually look at the internal emails uh, or the internal instructions pulled out by um, these employers to their employees, what they say uh, is that, um, you know, something like, we noticed that on uh, this day, uh, public transportation might be severely disrupted, and therefore we understand if you cannot show up to work. So then they're using the uh, the failure of the public transportation system as a reason for uh, giving flexibility for the the employ- employees to uh, show up late or not show up at all, um, which then is a depoliticized way of allowing a strike to happen. And so then that actually would not get them into trouble, uh, even if these instructions were released or or, 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 or leaked by the press or, or, or let known to the authorities because it sounds so much more reasonable um, that you can't show up to work because someone else has already disrupted the, 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 the public transportation system. You, in a way, you're letting someone else, anonymous, take the responsibility, but then actually allowing your employees to just not show up to work because you are... Uh, you know, support this cause, for example, or just generally you respect the right of uh, the freedom of expression. So it's, it's strategic to block the, 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 the public transportation for this uh, particular reason. Uh, in terms of the, the uh, airport, uh, yes, I think there were, I don't have the exact number, but a, a, a large number of air traffic controllers uh, went to strike that day and they, they also put out a very good statement um, uh, explain the, the rationale. Uh, and Hong Kong-based airlines, uh, mostly Cathay Pacific, but also uh, Hong Kong Airlines, um, the composition of their workforce uh, are mostly Hong Kongers. So then um, what happened on the day, uh, on Monday, the day of the general strike, was that there, that there are currently two runways in the Hong Kong International Airport, but they only had enough uh, air traffic controllers to operate one. So effectively, the capacity to land and uh, and 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 have planes of of, of um, you know depart uh, is cut in half or was cut in half. And then you had especially huge cancellations or delays uh, for the, uh, the Hong Kong-based airlines because the um, the their staff, uh, including uh, the, the crew on on board and also the ground staff, uh, are not showing to work in huge numbers. Uh, so then. 
um, there were severe cancellations for, for those flights, but for like American Airlines or United Airlines or Delta Airlines uh, or any other airlines coming into Hong Kong and flying out uh, with a, a crew com- comprised of, uh, of, of uh, employees from other countries, then they, th- those ones were less uh, disrupted, but there were certainly delays. Uh, and that's hugely symbolic because there's only one airport in Hong Kong uh, instead of three, for example, in the New York area. So if you block this one airport, effectively, uh, you uh, send a very important message to the international community that there is something very serious happening in Hong Kong right now, uh, and you should pay attention. And so I think in terms of that, they actually uh, did a good job in in achieving that, um, because the Hong Kong International Airport is one of the very busiest uh, airports around the world, and certainly in Asia as well. When Chinese mainlanders come uh, to Hong Kong and they see this disruption, I mean, what is the what is the hope of the message that you're projecting to them? Because it's gotten, um, I would say, mixed mixed reactions at best um, on the mainland, considering um, you know how the how Beijing is going to spin it as well. Um, so I guess like what what is the re- response you're hoping for, um, or or at least the image you're trying to project to uh, mainlanders who are observing this from there. Well, I I don't actually know if anyone uh, interviewed uh, at least more than one or two mainland travelers specifically affected by the air flight um, uh, disruption. So I don't know, but I you know my I suspect based on my understanding of the sort of mainland um, rhetoric going on right now about Hong Kong protests, I, I I assume that most of them would not have been supportive, even if they were not necessarily hugely nationalistic, um, the fact that, number one, that their travel plans have been disrupted would have been annoying for them, uh, to say the least. And then uh, also because they come from an authoritarian country with uh, so much restriction on their information, um, they were not brought up um, at a time in the place where um, you know, ideas like the freedom of expression or human rights are, are respected. So they might not come from uh, uh, a point of understanding, uh, and, and and that would that that would have been difficult for them to feel sympathetic to our movement. Um, certainly, I'm not saying that no one in China supports us. I think there are, uh, in fact, I think there are uh, a number of mainland um, Chinese who 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 have been able to find out what's going on in Hong Kong through. Um, you know, through through the internet, but you know, given the censorship, it must have been difficult. But they they knew what's uh, what's going on in Hong Kong, um, and throughout these past few months, um, they would have come to Hong Kong and you know and said that they supported us. You know, sometimes at protest sites, there would be mainland Chinese coming in just to just to tell us. Um, I mean, there are stories like uh, similar stories that, that that people tell, but you know, just to show up and say, you know, I'm from China, I don't have this kind of freedom, um, and then I respect that you guys are trying to defend your freedom uh, and I support you. So, so these things do happen, but they but it's it's harder to find them uh, just happen to be disrupted uh, in terms of their travel plans on the day of a general strike at the airport. So it it would it would have been very difficult. But I think um, yeah, I mean Hong Kong is a very cosmopolitan place. As I said, it's not just the mainland Chinese that were affected. Um, for other for tourists from other democratic countries, I think that there would be there would have been more understanding from them. Um, you know that there, there, there are routinely routinely strikes, for example, in the UK and in in France. I have in mind that uh, that disrupt air travel. So for 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 people coming from different countries, then there, there, there's a different expectation and different sort of understanding of what's going on. And I think probably less from China. Yeah. Do you feel like things have changed? Because it seems like if anything, the police crackdowns have been intensifying and also when we last spoke it was beef the incident in which um, some demonstrators were attacked on the train on the way home how do you see the official response coming down and do you feel like i don't know the wind is still at your back yeah so well, so two things that that you were talking about um the first thing yes so on the on july 21st it was the day when um, when thugs, literal thugs with you know ties to organized crime, just decided to come to Yunlong Station, uh, a train station, and attack 
uh, people indiscriminately. Many wearing black had, you know, were, were, had joined the protest early in the day and were returning home. But there were just passersby and and and, and random people who were not in any way related to the to the resistance. Um, but they were also affected. Uh, by this attack and the police failed to show up and, you know, credible evidence suggesting that the police allowed this to happen um, because it's a very common tactic for authoritarian countries, certainly China, to employ, um, you know, thugs and, and illegal groups to to do the, the dirty work for them that they can not otherwise do with the police force. Uh, the police could just not show up in that alone. You know, in terms of the level of violence, it was, you know, there was no way to stop it and, and, and hence the injuries. So since I think 21st of, of, of July um, was the huge turning point, because before then, um, when people were out in the streets and they were, they were talking about their demands and, and chanting slogans, uh, it was still about anti-extradition to China. Um, it diminished uh, since, uh, you know, Chief Executive Carrie Lam declared the bill dead. Um, basically, the bill is suspended, but still not fully withdrawn, and people are still dissatisfied about that. Um, but then, increasingly, there was a turn to other things, including the democratization of Hong Kong, police brutality. But the, I, I think it was the, 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 it was that day, uh, the attack at the train station, where um, really, you know, people were so angry at the police for failing to show up and for allowing, you know, um, thugs to attack ordinary citizens and protesters. That since then. I don't think I've even heard anybody talking about extradition anymore. I mean, in the past two, three weeks, it was basically all against police brutality in Hong Kong um, and then also, you know, calls for democratization and other things. But extradition is no longer a word that you would hear at protest sites, let alone in other places. Uh, and that's the completely changed scenario compared to what happened in June when everything was about extradition because the bill was uh, going to be passed, as everybody thought. Um, so, so that's the change there, uh, and 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 so right now the 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 anger is really directed toward the police and uh, with their their unchecked uh, power, um, and then so the general strike I think um, you know uh, uh, sort of anger against the police features prominently uh, in the in the strike action, and then also in terms in terms of international sympathy for Hong Kong. I mean there are. You know, so many, so much evidence, uh, you know, published in major newspapers. I think the New York Times have done a series of very good um, video work um, documenting the use of excessive force against protesters since June, but then also even a very good um, sort of uh, uh, piece uh, on the Yunlong train station attack as well. So that is going to help in terms of um, showing the international community what the Hong Kong police force have done. And then that's going to, you know, with these images and with these reports, that's going to help sustain international support for the protesters of Hong Kong um, because then there's going to be, you know, understanding why that we are so angry or why that we are so unhappy with what's going on here. Um, and then I think the very, very important point that I have to say is that the general strike was used as a method of protest uh, on on Monday, and I think you know, and and I I can I can foresee that similar things will happen again uh, soon in the future. Um, but when we think about strikes in um, other Western societies, uh, especially ones that that are already democratic, um, they are labor movements um, that are used uh, in order to advance a labor agenda. So you know, better wages or uh, you know, lower working hours, better conditions, etc. Um, and so then, then when that happens, then there's a left-right sort of division in terms of uh, the views toward whether the strike was appropriate, necessary, or how uh, you know how long the strike should last. Uh, you know, to you know where where does the line stop? That kind of thing. Uh, it, tra- it 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 is that there's a sort of ideological divide if we think about this strike in terms of a domestic political issue. But that's not in Hong Kong, because in Hong Kong, it, it was a strike, but it was not for uh, it was not for economic reasons. Uh, it was primarily for political reasons. So then um, since the international community have been so supportive of Hong Kong uh, on the issue of extradition, by extension, then they understand that the strike was used uh, as a way to counter China's interference in Hong Kong uh, and also counter brutality, police brutality uh, on the part of the Hong Kong police, 
then it makes sense for them to support this kind of strike um, because even though the, uh, the 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 sort of method is similar, um, the the sort of uh, reason for the strike or the, the the ultimate objective of the strike uh, is 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 not in any way shaped by a sort of left right political divide. That's what I think. Yeah, it does seem like there is at least um, some class element to this involved. I mean, traditionally, um, the most uh, pro-Beijing elements in Hong Kong society have been um, the business elite. And also there is um, significant, uh, I would say, you know, probably pretty massive inequality. Um, to what extent do you think that there, there might be an economic unrest element to this? I mean, Hong Kong certainly has had its share of that in, in recent years, even if it hasn't played out in terms of, um, you know, like huge strikes. Yeah, Um the the sort of economic reasons behind the protest, I think uh, it's better to understand this as sort of like a background or contextual information, um, but it is not the driving force behind the anti-extradition movement and not the driving force behind the, the strike, because this has been political. I mean, yes, it's true that the, you know, the wealthy business owners uh, have, have traditionally been on the side of the Chinese government in terms of issues in Hong Kong and, you know, and wanting to protect their interest by colluding with the Chinese government and repressing freedoms in Hong Kong. But what we have seen over the past couple of months is that actually the people who stood most firmly against the extradition bill uh, with the business community, because their interests were so severely affected, because if the extradition bill were to pass, then Hong Kong's reputation uh, as a sort of uh, good place to do business with China, uh, but also free enough uh, to, you know, not, for example, be affected by the unfair, uh, you know, system of trial in China. Well, that would have been severely affected, and their interests would have been severely severely affected. So they were actually against this whole extradition bill. So it was one of the rare circ- uh, rare scenarios in Hong Kong after 1997, when actually the majority of pro-democracy protesters uh, agreed with the business community. Um, but then right now it's moved beyond the extradition bill and the business communities have sort of returned to, you know, not talking uh, so much about, uh, you know, what's happening right now and letting the, the people, uh, the protesters do, um, the, you know, do their thing. Um, so that seems to be what's the dynamic between the business community and the majority of the protesters right now. Um, in terms of expensive housing, that kind of thing, yes, it, it is important. Um, I'm, you know, looking at a, a recent poll released by the Hong Kong Public Opinion Research Institute, uh, which is one of the most reputable uh, 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 places for public opinion polls, um, looking at, you know, why the, um, you know, why young people continue to take to the streets. Um, and then there's 81% who say it's because they distrust the Chinese government, uh, 75% who say they distrust one country, two systems, uh, and 58% saying that they were affected by, uh, you know, expensive housing prices. So 58% is a huge number, um, uh, but then it's, it's not uh, higher than uh, the 81 who don't trust the Chinese government. So so that's why I say it's important to understand the economic reasons. And that is certainly important uh, contextual information. But that is not the number one issue right now uh, in Hong Kong. And here is Wang Yuloi, organizing coordinator for the Hong Kong Confederation of Trade Unions. What was the role of the labor unions involved in this? I mean, were they actually... The strike on Monday is not a... Um, well-organized strike in uh, in the sense that uh, not many uh, organized labor unions involved uh, in the preparation period. And so what was it, just people spontaneously just walking off the job? Not very spontaneously, but uh, actually they are organized through uh, social media. We have a social media called Telegram. We set up, uh, I mean, they set up so many... Uh, a telegram uh, across different trades and occupation and industries. So basically, different industries or trades, they have their own telegram to mobilize people. And then at the later stage for the preparation of strike, um, they contact um, HKCTU and they want HKCTU to involve. 
we would set up a, a promotion stand and promotions booth in in uh, seven districts because uh, on the date of general strike we we have uh, seven assemblies across Hong Kong. So basically, um, we are one of the uh, uh, participants uh, in the general strike, and then we set up booths in different assembly venues. So people will recognize that oh, there is a labor union here. And then, uh, uh, and, and then some of our unions do pass a resolution that we will support the strike and we will mobilize the members to support the strike. So it seems that it is a collaboration of, uh, you know, um, civil society and the trade union movement here in Hong Kong. Can you describe for people who don't know um, what, I mean, I think many people tend to think of Hong Kong as a very affluent kind of city state. Um, what is it like for workers there? Um, you know, people who uh, aren't the, you know, financial industry people we see on the news all the time, but, you know, ordinary people, civil servants, workers, what is it like there? And how has it changed um, since Beijing took over? I think uh, after 97, people, uh, you know, we, we, as a normal people in Hong Kong, we uh, come, uh, come across many difficulties, for, for example, the rent, the rent price is surging, uh, you know, rapidly, and then the the cost of living is uh, terribly high, even higher than uh, I think now we are even higher than uh, Paris or London. Yeah, so terrible. So we also famous of uh, you know, uh, in terms of uh, happiness, we are uh, we are. We are, you know, at the at the bottom of the list, and then uh, the cost. On the other hand, the cost of living, we are at the bottom. Uh, we are at the top of the list, and then we have uh, the longest working hour in the world. The way that we have, uh, you know, most terrible uh, Gini coefficient in, in the world. So we make a lot of uh, wealth in the city, but. Most of the people, I think the majority, don't uh, enjoy uh, what we contribute to the uh, economy. And I guess, well, I mean, as a trade unionist, how do you think about this strategically? I mean, um, it seems like these protests keep going on and on. But I I mean, I guess from your perspective, um, to what end and how would the labor movement maybe navigate through this um, political landscape and maybe try to push um, certain aspects of, a, of your agenda as a trade union? So I think uh, people are now thinking of having a more organized uh, movement onward. So a trade union movement may be a way out. And then uh, uh, in, in coming November, we will have uh, our district council election. Now uh, we try to fill up all the gaps in the uh, I mean, in, dif- uh, in different districts. So uh, this time, I think uh, more pro-democratic uh, candidates, uh, they will run for the district council election on uh, coming November. And then next year, uh, we will have a general election of our legislative council. So I think... Uh, one of the important uh, battlegrounds is uh, election is is our uh, legislative council. So uh, in coming uh, half or maybe coming year, the uh, election will be uh, another battleground. So we, as a organized labor, uh, one of our aim is to politicalize our uh, members. It seems that it is a just like a body check of that, how our members uh, uh, viewing or uh, you know uh, judging this uh, movement. So one of our uh, you know uh, uh, aim or a a more urgent uh, agenda is to politicalize uh, our members.
Setting aside the politics of the LegCo, um, what are some campaigns that you are currently involved in as a trade union? And I guess, how do you feel about the state of trade unionism in Hong Kong in general? I mean, um, you know, as with uh, the U.S., uh, trade unions represent only a small fraction of the workforce in Hong Kong. Um, do you feel like there's a space in civil society that labor currently occupies or, you know, a leadership role in? And if so, I mean, what do you foresee for the labor movement? If you ask a similar question, uh, you know, uh, uh, four or five months ago, my answer will be very pessimistic. But uh, uh, but after this movement, uh, starting from um, Ju- uh, June and July, now I become more, uh, you know, uh, optimistic about the future of the labor movement because young people are trying to forming their own union in the industry that uh, HKCTU don't appear before. For example, uh, information technology or some uh, service industry, yeah, and then uh, some of the some of us, uh, even some civil servants, they are trying to form the new and uh, more pro- progressive unions, and then they do contact us. So this is this is all new areas that we don't appear before. You're listening to Belabored, a Descent Magazine podcast. Links to articles mentioned in this episode may be found at descentmagazine.org. And now it is time for ARG. I wish I'd written that. As you've no doubt heard by now, miners in storied Harlan County, Kentucky, are camping out on the tracks by the Black Jewel Mine, blocking a coal train that would take away coal that the miners dug but haven't been paid for. We hope to bring you much more on this story soon, and if you are one of those miners and you're listening, get at us, belabored at descentmagazine.org. But for today, I wanted to highlight excellent reporting by our friends at Labor Notes, specifically Alexandra Bradbury's piece, Kentucky Miners Are Camped Out on Railroad Tracks, Blocking a Coal Train, Demanding Their Stolen Wages. Bradbury writes, Word spread quickly July 29th that someone was loading up the train to move. A few laid-off miners headed down to the site to find out what was going on, and it didn't take long to decide they weren't going to let this train go anywhere. The miners want their jobs back if possible, but bottom line, they want their wages for the work they already did. I would like to get the money that I'm owed, said miner Cameron Cornett, a father of three, the money that I worked for and that was taken from me and my family and these other workers. If we can't get our money, they need to do something with former CEO Jeff Hoops for what he's done, said Shane Smith, a fourth-generation miner. His youngest daughter was born three days after the company announced its bankruptcy a month ago and stole workers' wages. Both men say they are owed nearly $4,000 in their last two paychecks. Miners say the county police came by, asked everybody to stay off the tracks, said as long as the protest stayed civil, there wouldn't be any trouble, and departed. Since then, miners, their spouses, their kids, and their supporters have maintained a constant presence at the tracks. The numbers have fluctuated with up to 100 people gathered at times and a few stalwarts sticking it out through the nights. To pass the time, they're playing cornhole and singing songs like I Want My Pay to the tune of I Want It That Way. Even rain last night didn't dampen their spirits. End quote. The story in Harlan County is not too dissimilar from the story in Belfast. Workers in difficult, back-breaking industries are the last ones taken care of when companies fail. The workers at Black Jewel learned the company was shutting down partway through a shift when it had filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy. Bradbury writes, The miners never got their last paycheck. Their second-to-last paycheck, already deposited, evaporated out of their bank accounts. Oh, and they never got official notice of their layoff either, meaning they can't collect unemployment either. Harlan County, like Belfast's shipyards, ought to be a focal point for any talk of a just transition or green jobs. The area will be down to only two mines after Black Duel's closed, and though it's Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell's jurisdiction, he has yet to turn up, though neither have many other national politicians, at least as of this recording. The workers also wondered if Donald Trump's promises of bringing back coal jobs were worth anything. But really, they wondered what the hell management was up to, as Bradbury writes, quote, 
On July 3rd, a federal bankruptcy judge denied Black Jewel the $20 million loan it would take to reopen the mines, but approved a $5 million loan for emergency expenses like security and firefighting on the condition that Hoops resign. Hearings and negotiations continue, and the company is set to auction off some mines. Smith said a reporter managed to get hold of former CEO Hoops on the phone July 30th. I don't know if he meant to answer the phone or not, Smith said, but he spoke a couple words to her. He said, I'm just as broke as they are. We all know better than that. Days after the bankruptcy, Hoops wrote to employees, no one is hurting more than me. In a follow-up text message to the Gillette News Record, he complained of receiving threats even though he had paid a private plane at the cost of $16,000 out of my pocket to deliver Wyoming Myers their checks. The mismanagement is shocking. A nonprofit public interest research firm called the Sightline Institute poured over Black Jewel's bankruptcy filing and reported that Hoops specialized in taking over financially struggling mines, that his companies were chronically short on cash and routinely stiffed creditors and tax collectors, that he had no way of tracking the finances of individual mines, and that he repeatedly transferred money back and forth between the company and his personal account, apparently to keep checks from bouncing. Oh, and Hoops is also building a $30 million Roman Coliseum-themed resort called the Grand Patrician on the site of an abandoned hospital in West Virginia. End quote. Yeah, that's that's a thing. The story is heartbreaking, but it also is a reminder of what worker solidarity can accomplish. In that way, the Belfast workers, the Harlan County workers, and remember the Repu workers at Republic Windows and Doors in Chicago in 2009? They are a challenge to us, to the labor movement. What can we do better? And my pick for ARG is The YouTubers Union is Not Messing Around by Edward Ongueso Jr. on Motherboard at Vice. If you go on YouTube, or chances are you're probably on it already as you listen to this, just as I have YouTube open on another tab as I make this podcast. But anyway, if you browse through YouTube, one of the first things you notice is that you're constantly bombarded with things that compel you, beg you, implore you to click and watch. And it seems like the most successful YouTubers with millions of followers are raking it in, getting ad-generated revenue just by sitting in front of a camera and doing their shtick. Could be as simple as reviewing drugstore beauty products, or making elaborate recipes using peeps, or just having a nervous breakdown on screen. But it is not nearly as cool as it seems, and that's why YouTubers are trying to form a union. Their effort is centered in Europe, with one of Europe's biggest unions, IG Metal. Edward Ongweso Jr. of Vice reports that this alliance could change the way the digital economy works by empowering YouTubers for the first time as real workers, employees with rights rather than just random individuals who happen to create cool videos that attract millions of viewers and catapult them to instant viral fame. YouTubers occupy the kind of purgatory level of the entertainment industry that many emerging media artists have over the years. They are not taken quite seriously yet they're still hugely marketable, and they're able to wield considerable pop cultural clout. But it's not all cut and dry. Just as we can never understand what makes some things go viral, YouTube is extremely cryptic about how it markets and monetizes different content. As millions chase the dream of becoming a professional influencer or content creation idol, YouTube wields an enormous amount of power as a gatekeeper to monetization, as well as an arbiter and a moderator of what is entertaining or not, what's cool, what's clickworthy, what gets bumped to the top of your playlist and recommended every time you log on. And while past attempts to organize YouTubers have failed due to the atomized nature of the workforce, this new effort has built a network of European-based content creators who are demanding a more transparent and equitable system of channeling viewership and revenue to content creators. They are striking back against YouTube's efforts to restrict the advertising attached to videos, which started in 2017, as YouTube's effort to placate its other client base, its advertisers. Wary of letting ads run alongside so-called extremist content, YouTube started to get choosier on its advertisers' behalf, and often this came at the expense of many hardworking creators, who found that their videos were no longer making money. Ongweso reports that following YouTube's implementation of more stringent control over monetization, quote, the combination of threats by advertisers that have empowered them to change who gets monetized, the increasing inability to make a living, and the opaque nature of how these rules are being constructed have left YouTubers feeling that the golden age of the platform is long over, unquote. This has actually sparked a number of people to protest through their videos on YouTube. But it's not really all about money. The YouTubers union, called Fairtube, also want to say in how YouTube works. One of their core demands is that the company set up, quote, a formal body, such as a partner advisory board, 
by which YouTube partners can participate in decisions that affect them, unquote. They also want to interact daily with real-life human flesh-and-blood people at YouTube instead of just a website or a complaint form. And they also want to give creators access to an independent arbitration system to, quote, contest any decision affecting them, including but not limited to monetization and search and discovery, unquote. This effort to curtail YouTube might be a particularly European phenomenon, given that their demands are building on a new legal framework that affords content creators and ordinary users of the internet unprecedented rights. The EU's General Data Protection Regulation just rolled out, and it is supposed to give ordinary users of the internet much more power to control what is said and displayed about them. But Angueso quotes Michael Six Silberman, IG Metal's project secretary, pointing out that, that if YouTube only does the mere minimum to satisfy its European creators, quote, that could lead to a caste system if the rules are only obeyed in the European Union, where the GDPR is the law of the land. Silverman hopes that they make this algorithmic management system scalable while treating people like they deserve to be treated. And they take these rules for Europe and apply them to everyone. So will it happen to content creators over here in the US? Well, YouTube is truly a global platform. It's one of the most ubiquitous and lucrative entertainment and media platforms in the world, and it should be governed as a global institution. Whether or not the U.S. follows Europe's more stringent data privacy laws, and that could run into some free speech issues, YouTube does have an ethical obligation to honor its creators' creativity, and by extension, their creative control. And the fact that FairTube is now creating a new kind of labor movement to advocate for these rights shows that YouTube isn't just about funny cat videos or conspiracy theorist rabbit holes. It is a communications platform that is increasingly shaping both our public discourse and how we define the work of creativity. Information may want to be free, but creative inspiration doesn't come cheap. And the people who work hard every day to bring you that experience deserve to be paid what they're worth. And that is it for this palindromic episode of Belabored. You can find all of our past archival episodes at descentmagazine.org. Thanks again to Natasha for making us sound good. And feel free to check out the website and become a sustaining member. And you might get some free Belabored swag, too. And if you are out raising hell in Hong Kong, blockading a coal train in Appalachia, or forming a YouTube union in the European Union, let us know. Get us on Twitter at hashtag belabored, or you can email us at belabored at descentmagazine.org. Over and out. You've been listening to Descent Magazine's Belabored Podcast. For the entire archive of past episodes, visit descentmagazine.org. Join us online using hashtag belabored. <laughs>